Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. I would love for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. That's on page 812 of the Pew Bible. Uh, Matthew 7, so we've got a bunch of Bibles around. If you're new, then you can just feel, to, feel free to pick that one up. And we're going to be in Matthew 7, but we're also going to jump around a whole bunch here tonight. Uh, tonight, we're starting a new series called Bad Advice. And it may be that over the different seasons of your life, you've received a bunch of well-intentioned advice that turned out to be not very helpful later on. And so you felt that the advice that you received in that moment was helpful, but then the bottom fell out on it later. And so what we want to do over this next six-week journey is to replace bad advice, not with a different kind of advice, but to replace bad advice with biblical truth. And over the many seasons of my life, there's been a bunch of bad advice that I received uh, that I thought was really helpful at the time, and then turned out later to be not that helpful at all, like um, trust your gut. I don't know if you've ever been told to trust your gut, but I can't trust my gut at all because I am never, ever full. I can keep eating and eating and eating. Sometimes in my gut, I feel um, all out of shape when I've had too much sugar or not enough sugar or I've had too much sleep or I've had not enough, sh- not enough sleep. I can never really trust my gut. I've also figured out that the, this piece of advice is not that helpful at all either. Love comes when you least expect it. I don't know if you've heard that piece of advice before, but how can you live your life trying to convince yourself not to expect that something's going to happen? So if someone said to you, don't picture a pink elephant, you picture a pink elephant. And so you spend your whole life walking around saying, I don't want to expect it, I don't want to expect it. Until you bump into somebody else that says, you really need, to, really need to put yourself out there. Two pieces of completely contradictory advice that don't make sense at all. It is an absolute mystery to me how anyone ends up in a relationship at all. Or what about the piece of advice that you can trust that the Adelaide Crows are a consistent football team? Shocking advice that Adelaide Crows could beat Geelong by 150 points and I could still believe that they would lose to the worst football team in the AFL the next week. There are some pieces of advice that we just need to not put our hope in. The problem with bad advice is that it's often given with uh, much confidence when you receive it. And so what we want to do is replace good advice, not with another kind of advice, but to replace it with biblical truth. So over the next six weeks... We're going to do something that is not like a different version of The View with like Whoopi Goldberg at one end and that chick from Roseanne at the other end and they just spurt these different kinds of advice at at each other and at the end you just take what you will. But we want to rest in God's Word and tonight we're going to deal with what is often the most misunderstood or misinterpreted verse that you will read in the Bible. See, this verse is often known by a lot of different people regardless of their religious experience. And so if there was somebody who didn't go to church at all, they had never had an experience of church before and they could only really know a couple of Bible verses, it's pretty common that this would be that kind of verse. This is a verse that is often thrown from Christians at non-Christians, from non-Christians to Christians, from Christians at other Christians. And so often they've misunderstood the beauty that is in this verse and what the context and the full counsel of Scripture would teach us about this verse. Tonight, our, Bible, our bad advice comes in the form of a Bible verse, and it even comes from the lips of Jesus. It is Matthew 7, verse 1. It says, Judge not that you not be judged. 
Or it might be judge not, depending on the version that you would read, judge not, lest you not be judged. A, a different way of saying this is, who are you to judge me? Who died and made you king? Who are you to tell me what to do? There's all these different ways that you might have heard that sprouted out through your life. And it's really, really important that we understand the impact that this verse can have. So what we're going to do tonight is look at um, this uh, piece of advice in three different uh, ways, looking through three different questions. Question number one is, when does a Bible verse become bad advice? Question number two, what approach to judging is God opposed to? And question number three, what approach to judging does God celebrate? So let's look at question number one. When does a Bible verse become bad advice? Well, a Bible verse will become bad advice when its content is divorced from its context. When content is divorced from context. What's true is that you never really know what somebody means without understanding the context in which it's said. You can never really understand if something's true unless you understand its context. If I was to say to you that the chairs are red, then we would all know that that is true. But if you change to a different context, then all of a sudden, that statement may not be true. If I was to say to you that the, that the speed limit is 60 kilometres, on some roads that would be true, and on other roads that would not be true. Context is king. Context is helpful for us in an understanding how we are to come to different passages of Scripture because often our pride wants to tell us what the Bible really means before we approach it. We often come to the Bible wanting it to say what we want it to say before we even come to approach it. That is the state of our pride. Here's an example. Um, I've never really liked Christmas for most of my life, right? Most of my life, I think it's something to do with like the Christmas carols playing in August in the Maya Centre. I think it's to do with like the carols at the end of the year, how, how Christianity seems to get, you know, uh, a slayed by the media all year long until you come to like December and then they're all singing about it. And, and, and it was this big contradiction in my heart until a few years ago, I just got over it. But there was this season of my life where I didn't like Christmas at all. And let's just say that in this season, I wanted to convince you that we should all kill off every Christmas tree. Well, I want to find a Bible verse to support it. And because I don't care about context, I'm just going to go through my Bible and let's see if I can find a Bible verse that can just support my um, inclination to destroy all Christmas trees. If I was going to do that and I didn't care about context, I would point you all to Jeremiah 10 uh, verses 1 to 4. Listen to Jeremiah 10 verses 1 to 4. It says this, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, a house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Kill all Christmas trees. So should we kill all Christmas trees? Well, we should if we're worshipping them, right? If you understand the context of this passage, what you would understand is that the trees that they were using, they were adorning them with silver and gold and they were worshipping them. If you were to continue to read, you would see this verse says in, in verse 5, their idols, the trees, are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. 
They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they can do no evil, neither is it in them to do good. So what the author is saying is that they're worshipping these trees that have no power to do anything. So should you kill your Christmas tree? Well, if you're bowing down and worshipping it, you should. Can you have a Christmas tree in your house to celebrate the coming season? Of course you can. Context is king. So when does a Bible verse become bad advice? Was when its content is divorced from its context. Context is king. So what's the context of Matthew 7? Well, the Gospel of Matthew, like the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, they, they come with their own context. The author is using this narrative, narrative to tell a, selected, a selective history of the life of Jesus. And we know that the Gospel of Mark was written to a predominantly um, non-Jewish background. We know that Luke was written to mainly skeptics. We know that the Gospel of Matthew was written to primarily Jewish audience, so people that had an incredibly good understanding of the Old Testament. So Jesus stands up in what is undoubtedly his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And from chapters 5 to, through to chapter 7, he preaches this message into the heart of what is a predominantly Jewish religion now, become, now becoming Christian. And so we come to uh, Matthew verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, and the Jewish community has been infiltrated by an incredibly hypocritical people, which is the Pharisees. The Pharisees lived an incredibly hypocritical life. And so Jesus, speaking to these people, says these words. Look down in your Bible. It says, Judge not that you not be judged. Judge not that you not be judged. To judge means to hold to a certain standard. And in God's kingdom, there is no place for a certain approach to judging. The problem with the way that 99% of people interpret this passage is that they don't read anything that follows. They take these slogans out of the Bible, say that they've read the Bible, but they have no understanding of the context, which is the power in which it brings. Straight after this verse, we see the word for, which tells us that there is an explanation coming. It says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So Jesus says the way in which you judge others... The way in which you judge other people is going to be the way in which I judge you. Does that mean that if you um, don't, judge others, don't judge others, then you won't be judged? Not at all. Because Jesus says later in the same cha chapter that it is the narrow door or the narrow gate by which we come into relationship with him. So there is a judgment coming. But Jesus' point here is that you can't call attention to the sin of others while maintaining unrepentant sin in your own life. That is what a hypocrite is. You're not a hypocrite if you've sinned in your past and you're passing on godly wisdom to another. That's not being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who carries in them unrepentant sin, sin that they're not willing to deal with, and then seek to call out sin in the lives of everybody else. Look at the illustration he gives in verses 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, the emphasis on these verses is actually taking a shot at unrepentant sinners who love to point out the faults in others without tending to their own sin. It's not a command not to use wisdom. It's not a command not to discern and it's not a command not to speak the truth in love. 
In March of 2000, um, I read about this really incredible story of this woman who, the elderly woman who was shopping um, early in the morning. She went to the shops and she was in the groceries and she was filling up her, um, like filling up her trolley with all these groceries and this uh, mugger came in to rob her. And this mugger came in and tried to rob her and she, um, she felt like him punch her in the back and, and she, she, she pushed him off and then he ended up running away and she was a stoic grandma and so she just, kept, she just kept shopping, got a shopping trolley, went around and filled it with groceries and she walked all through the shopping centre. They said that the security footage caught her, caught her like walking around the shopping centre and she went up to pay for all of her goods and it was, the, it was long before we had these self-service checkouts. So people would have seen her in the aisles People would have seen her at the checkout and then she walked home. So people would have seen her in the street. It wasn't until she got home that she'd realised that she hadn't been punched in the back, but there was a big knife hanging out of her back. A community does nothing good for its community when it refuses to speak the truth in love. There is nothing good that comes to a community if everyone says, well, if it's not hurting me, it's not my problem. A community isn't healthy when it chooses not to speak the truth in love. So we need to ask the question, what approach to judging is God opposed to and what approach to judging does God celebrate? Well, let's look at question number two. What approach to judging is God opposed to? Well, the first kind of judging that God is opposed to is judgment that comes from self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Remembering that Jesus is taking aim at the heart of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees when he speaks about this verse. How did the word Pharisees become an adjective? When we use it like you Pharisee, we're often saying you legalist or you, legal, uh, you legalist hypocrite. Living your life in such a way where you lord your own righteousness over everybody else without tending to the sin in your own life. You know, Jesus has huge issues with Pharisees. And when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, there were a bunch of people in the Jewish community that didn't like how the Pharisees were being portrayed. But the truth is that all through the New Testament, all through the biblical narratives, the Pharisees are spoken of in such a way that they were um, self-righteous people that were hypocrites. They're described as people who are not people of integrity. They were not respected by the people. They lived lavish lifestyles while their people lived in poverty. They boasted in their own religiosity and loved the thrill of being called a rabbi. And they condemned Jesus to death because their own authority was being threatened. Listen to what is recorded in Matthew 23. It says that, it says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad, I'll explain that in a moment, and their fringes long, and they love the place of honour and feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and love being called rabbis by others. So the phylacteries were this box that rabbis would kind of wear on their body and they would keep in there these, these um, scriptures from the Old Testament to remind them about God. And they would build these grander and bigger phylacteries so that people would see how holy and righteous they were. The problem with being self-righteous is that it makes you a worship thief. It takes the glory that is due God and it places it on yourself. 
There is a worship that is due to God. And when you place it on, it, uh, place it on yourself, you become a person who is self-righteous. Self-righteousness robs God of worship, but it also denies the power of the gospel. The problem with self-righteousness is that self-righteousness says that I'm valuable because of what I contribute. But my value doesn't come because I contribute. I value because I, I'm valuable because I have my identity in God. And because my identity is in God, then I contribute. Self-righteousness is a huge problem. But so is judgment that comes from personal preference. Judgment that comes from personal preference. Now, I do believe that there are many seasons in my life where I wish that I had sought out godly wisdom. There are many, many people in this church that have been around the mountain many more times than I have. And I wish there were times where I stopped and sought out godly wisdom. But we need to understand that godly wisdom isn't the same always as a biblical command or biblical truth. There are times in our lives where we need to understand that if the Bible says it, we need to hold firmly to it. But if the Bible speaks loosely of it, because the Bible does not speak about every situation, then it does come down to a matter of conscience. The best way that I can really explain this is an example for me is that it jumps out for me when I interact with food, right? Because of my past, I know that there are um, times where I can eat food and I can be glorifying God, and there are times where I can eat food and I can be sinning. In our office, we have this coffee machine, and then behind this coffee machine, we have, or like behind the person standing in the coffee machine, we have this kind of communal table where people like put all of their homemade biscuits or all of their homemade cakes or all the wraps that Timon bought from Costco, all of these things, right? <laughs> And there are times where I can stand around and I can partake and it's all fine and I can glorify God. But it is true that in my heart, sometimes I am gorging myself and I'm not honouring God and I'm not glorifying God and I'm seeking comfort in food instead of seeking comfort in God. So when those moments come, is it right for me to stop eating? Of course. Is it right for me to go to everybody else in the room and say, you shouldn't eat because you're sinning? Of course not. Of course not. That is a matter of preference and comes down to as a matter of conscience. This is what Paul writes in Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And this is verse 5. It says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So does that mean where the Bible doesn't lay things down concretely, concretely, that you get a pass, that you can just do whatever you want? Now, the Christian is committed to glorifying God in every single area of their life. The question isn't, is that sin? The question is, how can I glorify God? Not what can I get away with? Not what's the, what's the minimum standard for me to get over the bar? The question is, how might I best glorify God in every single area of my life, at every single moment of my life? That is the question. Paul goes on to say, 
The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. And then if you jump down to verse 7, it says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whenever we, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We do everything to glorify God. Everything to glorify God. Can I eat and glorify God? Truthfully, sometimes I can't. Can I post on Instagram and glorify God? Truthfully, sometimes I can't. Some things come down to a matter of conscience. Some things come down to a matter of conscience. God condemns judgment that is self-righteous. He also condemns judgment that is based on preference. But thirdly, God also condemns judgment that is is reserved. God thirdly condemns judgment that is reserved for God. There is this uh, show me and my wife have been watching called The Good Place. Uh, on Netflix. I don't know if you've been watching this show. It's a really interesting show. The whole premise of this show is that um, it's asking the question, how do you get into heaven? And in the good place, they've decided that it's a point system. And if you get enough points, you know, you let enough people in in traffic or you hand out enough um, money to people that are begging on the street or you're kind to enough people, you get more points. But if you cut people off in traffic or, or you do something nice for someone just so that you get a reward in return, then you lose points. That's their system. And it seems that everyone has decided for themselves what is the way to be saved. And they live according to that pattern. Some people decide that heaven is based on whether we're good enough. Some people have decided that it doesn't matter which religion you follow. Some people have decided that we get into heaven because everyone gets into heaven. But the truth is, is that you don't get to decide, you don't get to judge the way of salvation. Jesus presents the way of salvation. Paul says in, uh, Luke says in 13, chapter 13, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able, and will not be able. We don't decide how we can get into heaven. So we don't judge out of self-righteousness, we don't judge out of preference and we do not judge in the place of Christ. So what is the kind of judgment that God does celebrate? Well, when, it come, when you come across a peculiar verse, there's a couple of things that you can do. You can look at the, its full context, but what you can also do is look at the full counsel of Scripture. So what's the full context here? We've seen that Jesus is speaking to a community that is being lauded over by hypocrites. Now, if you look down in verse 5 of Matthew 7, if you're still there, he concludes his teaching on judging by saying, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, commentators believe that Jesus, Jesus is using an ancient proverb to teach people that, um, to teach the disciples that as they travel, they're going to be sharing this gospel news and it's not going to be received by, anyone, by everyone. Some people are not going to receive this great hope of the gospel, so wipe the dirt off from your feet and carry on. And so how are you supposed to know who are the pigs and who are the dogs unless you make a discernment, unless you make a judgment. There is a kind of judgment that God has prepared us for and that God celebrates. That's the context, but what does the full counsel of Scripture say? Well, one of the most helpful passages of Scripture is in Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 15. And it says, this is Paul writing, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers... to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up 
the body of Christ, until we, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The kind of judgment that God celebrates is speaking the truth in love. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. What reason does Paul give us for speaking the truth in love? It's so that we may no longer be children, knocked to and fro in the waves, being caught up by every wind of doctrine, so that we may flourish in the work of the ministry. So God calls us to speak the truth in love to each other so we're not knocked around by every single piece of doctrine so that we may flourish in the work of the ministry. The truth, that, truth is that if the church is ever going to be the hope of the world, the church first needs to be the hope of the church. The church needs to be willing to speak the truth to one another. What do I mean by this? The church needs to, needs to be willing to speak the truth in love for the sake of our gospel mission because the effectiveness of our gospel mission will always be limited by the integrity of our gospel community. Let me say that again. The effectiveness of our gospel mission will always be limited by the integrity of our gospel community. You know, when I first got saved... I was willing to proclaim Christ unto death, but not that I liked Christian music. And I would listen to Christian music, and I thought that it was corny, and I used to stay far from it because um, I thought that these Christian artists, not that they weren't cool, and not that they didn't dress right, but I thought that they didn't really get what it meant to be a Christian in culture. Until I was uh, listening to this one Christian album, um, DC Talk, way back when, and at the start of this song, they um, had this quote by a bloke, a bloke named Brennan Manning that said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You know, when I'm in a situation sharing my faith with other people, it, people that aren't believers in Christ don't just have an issue with our truth, they also have an issue with our truth in action. So they've met so many people where our truth doesn't seem to line up with, their, with our action and so integrity is lost. The value of our message is lost if we're not willing to be a church that is willing to speak the truth in love to each other. We speak the truth in love to each other because the effectiveness of our gospel mission will always be limited or capped by the integrity of our gospel community. When I'm in situations like this, it's so often about how we live. Speaking the truth in love enlarges the possibilities for our church's mission in the world because that's what being salt and light is. So what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp under and put it under a basket, but on a stand. 
and he gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and glorify you. No, glorify your Father who is in heaven. A church's commitment to honouring God with their lives honours God and opens up the possibilities for gospel mission. So how do you go about doing that? Paul says that you speak the truth, but you speak the truth in love. You speak the truth in love. And in Matthew 18, we get an incredible picture of how to do this. It's not about ridiculing another. It's not about embarrassing another. It's not about shaming another. It says that if someone sins against you, that you should go to that person and tell them their fault. And if that person won't listen, that you should take one or two other people with you. And if that person doesn't listen, then you should bring them before, before the church, which perhaps in our context is a pastoral team member or perhaps the eldership. The whole process is not about shaming someone. The process is about building someone back up. There is no place in the life of a church to spread information about another person, even if it's true. God is in the business of ridiculing people that are stuck in sin. God is in the business of building people up so that he might be glorified and that the world might see these good deeds and glorify him who is in heaven. What might a conversation like this practically look like? Well, let's say that you're in a conversation with someone who might be struggling with sexual impurity. You might say to them something like, I just want to let you know that I love you and no matter how this conversation goes, nothing is going to change that. But I want you to know that the kind of sin that you're messing around in has a real potential to damage yourself, to damage others, to shipwreck your faith and it dishonours the great gift of the gospel in your life. And if you would let me love you and I would love to support you in repenting and turning back to Jesus. Now you might have your own words there. But what's the value? It's that there's hope. It's not ridiculing someone. It's offering a person a pathway back to Jesus. It's letting a person repent and turn unto Jesus. You might have your own words, but you might say, why speak in gentleness? Why speak in love? Why speak in humility? It's because that's who our king is. Our king is the one who came in gentleness. Our king is the one who came in humility. Our king is the one who came in love. He says in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That's who our king is. If King Jesus brought the truth in gentleness, who are we to do anything less? There's a scene in the Gospel of John where a woman is caught in adultery. And... Uh, these Pharisees have caught this woman and I cannot imagine what the scene would have been like. This woman caught in adultery is dragged out into public, dragged before Jesus. We don't know the kind of shame and vulnerability and embarrassment that she was feeling in that moment. We know that the man isn't there. The man must have been allowed to flee and run away. But this woman is brought before Jesus and she's embarrassed and shamed. And these Pharisees say to Jesus, the, the law says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? And this is a, just a setup to get Jesus to speak against Rome so that, he might, so that the Pharisees might have good reason to hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. And Jesus waits patiently and he, he stops and then he turns to the Pharisees and says, well, if any of you are a sinless person, then you may cast the first stone. 
And some of the translations say that when they were convicted in their own conscience, they walked away one by one. And Jesus turns to the woman and he says, Have, is there no one left to condemn you? And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and now sin no more. Jesus was so gracious to love her where she was, but so gracious not to leave her where she was. That, she, that he called her into a life of fleeing from sin, not denying the fact that she had sinned, but in her vulnerability, in her shame, didn't declare to the nations who she was, what her activity was, but he called her into a lifetime of serving Jesus and walking away from sin. There is a kind of judgment that God condemns. It is when we judge with unrepentant sin in our lives, when we judge out of preference, or when we stand in the judgment seat of God. But there is a kind of judgment that honours God. It's when we speak the truth in love, we speak gospel hope with an attitude of love and mercy. Why is it important? Because the effectiveness of our gospel mission will always be limited by the integrity of our gospel community. It might be tonight that you have sins that you need repenting of. Tonight is an opportunity for you to come to the one who is full of mercy, full of grace and full of love. But it might also be that someone has come to mind in our church community that you need to speak to for the sake of our gospel mission. Not that you would be a person that would spread the story, even if it is true, but you would be a person that speaks to that person one-on-one, that you could build them up, lead them in the way of repentance. They might glorify God and God's mission might be effective in this world. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your goodness and for your kindness towards us. We thank you that you're a God of mercy, that you're a God that is loving. We thank you that you're a God that provides a way for people to return to you. We bless your name, God, that you do not leave us in our sin, sin that does so much to drag us away from who you are and and in living life and life in all of its fullness. So God, we ask that by your grace, would you do a work in this community that we might be a people that do not judge out of self-righteousness or out of preference or in your seat of judgment, but that we might speak the truth in love so that you might be glorified and your mission in this world might reach more and more people for your glory. Pray these things in your name. Amen.